This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. Countries that have less gender equality, there's more violence inside their country, and they're more likely to get into conflict with other countries. So there's research that shows that if you're working towards gender equality, you're actually helping build peace. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women, Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis. Today, we are joined on the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast by a friend and colleague, Susan Markham. Susan is the director of the Peace with Women Fellowship Program at the Halifax International Security Forum and has been an absolute pathbreaker in the gender space and, and continues to pave the way with your new book, Feminist Foreign Policy in Theory and Practice. So welcome to the podcast. I've learned so much from you since taking over for Smart Women, Smart Power about what gender is, how we can use it to better understand and advance national objectives. And so it's just a real delight to have you here to learn about your experiences and your views on the importance and centrality of gender when we think about big foreign policy and national security questions. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm glad to be here. Just to start things off, how did you find yourself working in You've got an incredible career that took you into politics, campaigning, 50 different countries. How did you find yourself starting on this path? How did you end up deciding to pursue gender and its intersection with foreign policy? Well, I have to tell you, it was not a straight path and it was a very long path. Ironically, it started when I joined a sorority at Ohio State. Really? Yes. I did not come from a family that was in sororities. My mom wanted me to do it, so I joined it. But what we found is that if all the sororities joined together, we were actually the largest women's organization on campus. And the time for gender-based violence, you are most likely to be raped in college between your first day and your first Thanksgiving. Because you don't know what the social norms are, there's alcohol, you're kind of away from your peer group that you, you know grew up with. And so people are in situations uh, where gender-based violence, sexual assault takes place. So we thought as that a group just, of sororities... blew my mind. Yeah. Like, I did not know that, but yeah, okay. Well, if, <laughs> yeah, if a group of sororities sense. who are recruiting freshman women yeah. banded together and tried to educate and protect each other, I mean, obviously it's not their fault, but in the real world, right, look out for each other and make sure your sisters get home. And so starting to think about that, I actually became the president of all sororities, the Panhel president, and tried to think of it very much as, look, we were founded to support each other in this male institution. Let's continue to do that. So I hadn't been studying uh, gender or anything, but 
when I went through that experience, I learned a lot from my fellow students and colleagues. And so I ended up getting my master's degree in public policy and women's studies. And then the whole world opened up. And so my master's degree focused on women running for office. And if they thought their experience was the same or different than their male colleagues, and I was going to go become a political science professor I focused on women running for office, but I'd never worked on a political campaign before. So I was like, well, I should go out and do it. I always hated my professors who had not actually done what they were teaching. Oh, yes. You wanted the applied yes, knowledge, I right? Wanted like, to be like, yeah. And I'd interviewed all these candidates as part of my research. And I was asking them questions that I did not know. I had never gone door to door. I had never made a mail piece. And so I went out on a political campaign and I loved it. Yeah. I just, I loved the idea that there was no hierarchy, that if you worked hard, you could move up quickly. I'm a big sports fan. And I knew that on election day, everyone knows if you win or lose. It used to be back yeah. in the day. I mean, in the policy world, there's it's a long-term process. Mm-hmm. You're constantly compromising. You don't know, you know, I worked on yeah. healthcare back in 1994 with, and you know, I was constantly frustrated by that. So I was really excited to do politics. And through that, you know, I moved all over the country supporting men and women, but that got to come back to what we call the mothership Emily's list, where we helped elect uh, pro-choice democratic women. And from that, I really learned a lot about moving beyond the kind of theoretical and what it was like to sit across from a kitchen table from a woman, right? Like when you're running for state office, no one's calling you to say, how can we help, right? It's you, your best friend, your husband, literally in your garage, stuffing pieces of paper and going on the internet. And so I really felt that um, hands-on experience of helping women. But I got a little cynical in U.S. politics. I know that's so surprising. Um, (laughs) And so I started looking internationally. Groups from the State Department would often come to Emily's List and say, how can we build this in our country? But no one wanted to meet with them. I was like, cool, let's talk about this. And so that's how I got to know people at the State Department and USAID was because I would take their calls and meet with you know, groups from Indonesia, Israel, wherever to think about what is applicable because Emily's List was founded to focus on finance. And in most other countries, they don't have campaign finance issues because they spend not millions of dollars on campaigns. But there were some key issues. That's how I moved into the more international realm. And what I found was that women around the world, we can give them the hard skills, how to talk in public, how to think about what your positions are, how to raise money and these sorts of things. But in the end, it came down to, but how do I do it? Meaning I work outside the home. I do the majority of work inside my home. And now you want me to run for office? Like, that's crazy. Right. And so thinking about the realities of women's lives when we are asking them to do more all the time. And the second aspect of it was that they didn't think it mattered. They thought the political system was so fixed that if they ran, they weren't really going to make a difference. So why would they upend their whole world and then not being able to change the political system? So from that, I love the work that I did with the National Democratic Institute, but they really focused on, look, we just work within the political system as it is. And what I found was that, you know, if women don't feel safe, if their kids don't have enough to eat, like we can't ask them to run for office. So the democracy space had to think about development issues, but 
the development people who thought the work in democracy was kind of icky had to think about, look, if we don't have a good government, you can build all the schools you want. You can train teachers, but it's going to break down within the next. When I joined USAID, my goal was to bring the two communities to understand each other better, that you need to do democracy for development and the other way around. So I enjoyed my time at USAID, but I was really glad to leave the U.S. government because, <laughs> you know, it's hard. You don't really choose your own pathway. And so continued this work through Smash Strategies, thinking about gender how we can really think about it, integrated into organizations that don't have women or gender in their title, but really integrated into the way those organizations work and the programs that they do. And through this became involved in feminist foreign policy. Of course, not for pay. The work that we were doing for pay and then we do the feminist foreign policy stuff. We do so much work on nights and weekends just yes. to, you know, because we care, we're passionate about advancing the ball forward. Exactly. In the past decade, the definition of security has become more broad. Yes. That it's not just men and guns talking about men and guns, but really, and COVID laid this bare, right, about economic empowerment and global health issues and energy and food security. And all these issues impact the way people feel security. And so that's how I moved from development really into thinking about more broadly how we can think about gender in the foreign policy space. So if I could pick your brain a bit, because I think a lot of people, especially in the national security world, when they hear the word gender, they think feminism. But what is gender to you? So for me, it's taking into account that men and women, boys and girls and people of all genders, they go through the world in a different way. From the time babies are born... We treat them differently if we think of them as male or female. We treat them as a girl or a boy. Girls are held more facing in. Boys are held more facing out. The colors, the books, the toys, everything. Our culture is telling us from the time, even before they're born, when we know what the sex is, how to treat that person. And so as they grow up, as we grow up, we encounter the world in a different way. And so people have to take that into account when you say, how do you feel safe at night, right? Every woman knows you hold your keys in your hand or you pretend to be on the phone when you're in a cab so that that person knows that you are not vulnerable. My husband was like, what are you talking about? They literally walk through life not thinking about these issues. And so if you think about it on a more global scale, right, if a woman does not feel safe in her own home, in her own community, if she feels the threat of violence either from men she knows or doesn't know, right, it's a very different feel than thinking about another country coming in to invade you. And so gender is a social construct. We know that it's a social construct because it's not the same everywhere. There are different countries around the world where it's appropriate for dress and where women go and the work that they do. We know it has changed over time. What is appropriate for my grandmother is not what is appropriate for me. And we can see it change even in our own lifetimes, right? I used to not wear pants in elementary school. My mom was old fashioned. I would never think to have that conversation when my daughter was growing up. So it is something that is constructed and it's something that we need to address whether we seek to change it. I think that would be the differences is that feminists seek to change the gender norms, whereas just talking about gender doesn't mean you necessarily want to change it. Right. Also, in the world of national security, we tend to think about the issues in terms of guns and widgets and, you know, train and equip and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, war is a human endeavor and gender is a key way to express and, and be human. Right. 
express our humanity. You know, I've become convinced that we need to account for different conceptions of gender when we think about strategy and statecraft, because otherwise we are missing a huge element of war and the human condition that it is part of. Yeah. I mean, war does not take place over there in a field away from other people, right? It is ingrained, embedded in everyone's day-to-day life, whether it's a more formal conflict like Russia invading Ukraine or the many, many issues that are going on within countries and between countries that are never on our national news, right? Right. It is their daily life. And so you cannot separate how people experience that conflict. Absolutely. That juxtaposition of feminism as changing the those gender norms, but the appreciation of gender norms is really quite instructive. We'll get into this in a couple minutes, I think, when we talk about your book. But one of the things that I have found incredibly useful when contemplating gender is not just the feminine experience, but also the different kinds of masculinities that are out there and how, in particular, authoritarian regimes like Xi's China and Putin's Russia are propagating versions of masculinity that suck for dudes too. I yes. mean, it's horrible what men are being forced to comport with. Yes. When we did some programs at USAID on women's economic empowerment, whether it was helping them start a business or get into a more formal work situation, we had to create separate support groups for their husbands because they felt emasculated if the community knew that their wife had to work or bring in money to help support them. They felt they weren't doing they were letting their their family down, their community down. They were embarrassed because of the male role, right. the gender role that they felt as the man keeping up the house. I mean, we could see it a little with COVID where men were not seeking treatments earlier. They were avoiding because they're like, we're tough. We don't have to go to the doctor. I never. And, and so they were dying at higher rates early on before they realized. So it, it is it is it's not just a trap for one. It's right. a trap for all. Right. Absolutely. So let's jump into your experiences at USAID. You're working as a senior coordinator for gender equality and women's empowerment. I'm so glad we just had that discussion because of that juxtaposition of those two issues and roles. But the decision you brought to us today at Smart Women, Smart Power is your decision to focus on implementing gender policy rather than introducing new splashy programs, which is always a temptation. You come in and you want to do like change things. So the decision to implement is a powerful one. So can you set the scene for us? What was going on at USAID at the time? So President Obama was elected. First of all, there was a long time where there wasn't an administrator at USAID. Um, And so that went on for a long time. They had a slow start at USAID, I should say. And then they hired hired a great administrator and they brought in as the deputy administrator, Ambassador Don Steinberg. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yes. Yep, yep, Who yep. is a great yep. gender champion, a great mm-hmm. male champion coming from his own experience around peace negotiations and the role of women. And so as the deputy, he got to oversee a lot of things. And one of the things he did was advocate for a senior gender champion within USAID. There had never been this position before. So um, a great person took that role and they created the gender policy. There had been a gender policy like in the 60s, but it had not been updated for decades. So after working across the agency, they had the new updated gender equality and female empowerment policy come out in 2012, which if you're a political person, you realize That could have been the end. If Obama had lost, there would have been a new administration and that policy 
I don't know what would have happened to it. So they're lucky <laughs> that they won. So when I joined um, in 2014, the idea was, how do we take it to the next step? I was the second person in the role. I sat in the administrator's office, but of course had no staff. So what could I do? And coming from a political background, I was like, okay, this is internal advocacy. I got this. But as I said before, my goal was to build this bridge between development and democracy. And they're like, hmm, good luck. <laughs> you know, like, so in the second term of a president, they often, they know it's the end. And so they like, let's leave some big pictures. Let's put some splashy things up there. Yeah. But I thought it was really important because we had given this gift of a second term, yeah. let's really implement what we have put on paper here. Right. Because I did want to make it a big change. I didn't want them to think that it was just this administration and next one would be climate change or the next yeah. one would be whatever, that this was really deeply embedded in the way USAID does work because there was a lot of research showing that if you integrated gender into the development work, it was going to be both more impactful and more long lasting. And so thinking about what I needed to do to do kind of that boring work, but I thought super important work um, given the, the circumstances that we were in. Yeah. What were the key pressure points or I guess for, for our audience, what were the key aspects of the gender policy and how did you get them embedded within the system? Because that is that's some bureaucratic jujitsu. <laughs> yes, it was very frustrating. And I'd never worked at USAID before. So first mm. I had to have like the flow chart and the org chart to figure this out. What I tried to do was think about at all levels. So part of the gender policy is that you had to have a gender advisor in every what they call operating unit, either it's an office or a mission or a bureau. And so what we found is that the gender advisors had varying levels of quality. They had sure. experience. Sometimes they were just named that just because they were a woman and they were in the office and they're like, great, you can be the gender advisor. And when when that sort of thing happened, was it like another duty on top of your existing portfolio? Oftentimes. Okay. There was a bit a big fight when they wrote the gender policy that they wanted the word full-time gender advisor and it got right. written because, out. Because there's no like very little staff capacity, right? right. Relative right. to where heydays of USAID. Correct. Okay. And so figuring out who are the gender advisors who want to do or have been assigned this work, what is their level of knowledge? How can we give them the tools to implement it? Just day-to-day -day basis. Then we wanted to look at the middle managers. These people who control budgets, mm -hmm. control procurement oftentimes, and implement the programs. Because at that point, when you're doing the strategy and the planning, you're doing five-year plans. So if we can figure out when different missions or when different regions are writing their strategic plan and work with them so that if during these four years we have, then we're going to have long-term, right? Because yes. they don't undo them. Then it was the leadership level. The mission directors, the administrators, they all have administrator in their title, like AA, DAA. So anyway, <laughs> all the levels of administrators in D.C. And how do I get them to understand that their work would be more impactful? Because yeah. if they are showing political will at the top, then it also helps support these other two levels where we're working. So one thing that we did was we implemented a Gender 101 course, and it was just an online hour. It was really basic, but it was made for people. People who don't think about gender every day. And we made it so that everyone within their first year of employment had to take it. 
So the first thing I did was I checked the numbers because it's all online. So you know who's taking them. And so going to those AAs and other administrators and saying, look, you're way behind your colleague over here and really (laughs) trying to get a little sense of competition going. I mean, I loved it because it was very measurable. And I said, I'm reporting to the administrator every month where every bureau is in this. And so really pushing for that. It was the easy part, but it was fun too, because there were real numbers I could push people on. And then thinking about, we have this directive system. It's called ADS, the automated directive system. And it's basically how USAID runs. It's the owner's manual. And so then working to take the aspects of the policy, what is expected, what are the roles and responsibilities of everyone, um, how to do these things and put them into that manual. That, that was like the many, so many meetings, but that would be long-term. I understood that if it was hard for me to change, it was going to be hard for anyone else to change. And everyone who comes in, when they say, what are we supposed to do? They say, go to ADS. It's all online. And so we had that aspect. And then outside the agency, I really tried to work with our civil society partners who, quite frankly, do a lot of the USAID work. They're the contractors who do it. And tell them, oh, we have this gender policy. So then they became where they were adapting or adopting gender policies with their own organizations because they said, look, USAID is going to be looking for this in our proposals. That's huge. So then they were. That's huge adopting it and putting Mm -hmm. it into proposals so that when it came back, it was kind of a very positive loop, I should say, of information. And when USAID was falling short, I would say, look, they're going to come after us. Civil society is expecting this. So I kind of tried to be an internal advocate with my external friends. That's fantastic. And like getting that internal, external dynamic going in that, that virtuous cycle. Again, like building things into the contract. It's so powerful, but it's, but it's also like how DC works in so many ways. I know. I do have to tell you the procurement was where I really failed. Yeah. They were experts at holding me off there in the procurement office. Because at USAID, everyone changes jobs like every three years. They go in and out of D.C. And I tried to make meetings. It was way over in Southeast. And I had to go down and I'd be like, how can we get this? It's supposed to be in the procurement language. And once again, if it's in the contract, it has to happen. And man, they held me off. It was one of my great failure. They are being much more successful with it now. But man, they... But sometimes just identifying that and like pointing out that roadblock, that's... That's such a huge part of the the battle, right? And then people can take it forward from there. That's amazing. I was glad to hand those files over to someone else (laughs) at the end on my January 17th. Bye. (laughs) Well, do you think that your gender as a woman had an impact on how you approach these problems? If not, why not? I don't know. In a way, USAID isn't extremely great group of people. I used to joke it was the Peace Corps Alumni Association because they really care about their work. I met a guy who had been trying to get clean water in Yemen for 22 years. And to show that much dedication and he was going to figure it out between wars and everything else that he'd been in and out of Yemen evacuated because of conflict and all of that. So they really believed in this. So this idea that I wanted to help them add this to the thing that they believed in was 
I think what drove me to do that. So I don't know if it was because I didn't want something splashy. I mean, there is a lot of research on donors, women donors, where men want a building with their name on it. Mm -hmm. And women are much more focused on the work that's being done. They want to meet the beneficiaries. They want to, oh, can I help in some way in addition to the money? Mm -hmm. So there are some things where research in other fields that show men and women have a different thing. I mean, it's hard to know. I didn't think of it as that. But Certainly, I didn't go into the U.S. government thinking that I was doing it to get my next job or making a name for myself. And perhaps I should have thought of that more. But um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's kind of when I talk about my long and winding career, like I do interesting things right. with yeah. people I like. Right. That's that's not much of a career plan there. <laughs> but it keeps but me it's a, it's a great North Star. Yeah. I mean, it's I keep educating myself. I meet new people. And, you know, all those times I worked on U.S. political campaigns, I had never gone in with the person into the government. I had said, I am not that kind of person. And so I, I took it as an opportunity to learn the way the government really works. And my job was to make it work a little bit better. So turning to your book, yes. um, what inspired you to write a book about fem feminist foreign policy and related? What to you is feminist foreign policy? <laughs> so I was sitting at the U.S. Institute for Peace in 2014 when the foreign minister from Sweden, Margaret Wallström, showed up and gave a speech that they were adopting a feminist foreign policy. It was really a great day because they said feminist in a government room and half the people there were men and they were taking notes. <laughs> and it was it was electrifying because we were so far away from that in the U. And I was in the U.S. government at the time. So Sweden adopted it in 2014 and it was a slow start. You know, they put out the regulations. Their framework was rights, representation and resources that they were going to move towards more gender programming. No one else really adopted it for a while. But since then, 15 countries have adopted a feminist something. And every year it becomes more and more. It's going more quickly, I should say. So Canada has a feminist development and trade policy. France has a feminist diplomacy policy and other countries have called feminist foreign something mm -hmm. in their world. But what we found when we were thinking about would the U.S. ever do this or other things like that was what is feminist foreign policy? And so my co-author and I thought this would be a good time to kind of create the baseline research. What is it? What do governments call it? What do civil society organizations call feminist foreign policy? Is there any through line about what that means? Then in the book, we actually look at the countries who've said they're doing it and we give critiques, what it meant for that country and what critiques have been for that. And then we turn to the U.S. and think, could we possibly do this? The hardest part is that we weren't being advocates in the book. We were just reporting it. Oh, yeah. And so we yeah. did try to find what the through lines were. And there were a couple. The first is that gender equality is both a goal and a strategy. So what we found, Valerie Hudson and others at Texas A&M have written books that the greater gender equality in a country, the more likely they are to be a peaceful country. So countries that have less gender equality, there's more violence inside their country and they're more likely to get into conflict with other countries. If they have greater inequality, they're more likely to not abide by international treaties. So there's research that shows that if you're working towards gender equality, you're actually helping build peace. So thinking about gender equality, the second is this broadened idea of security, that yeah. countries who um, adopt a feminist foreign policy are thinking more broadly about what security means for their citizens and citizens in other countries. 
The third is increasing women's voices and representation in decision making. We should say not every woman is a feminist and not every feminist is a woman. But until we get to 50 percent, we need to keep pushing to increase the, the voices who are making those decisions around foreign policy. And then the last important principle, I think, is we're trying to rebalance power imbalances that have been happening. So within the U.S. government, we need to rebalance the spending on defense diplomacy and development, (laughs) right? The hundred times more that defense department gets. We're building ourselves up for that's the tool that we have because that's the tool that we keep investing in. If if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Exactly. Exactly. And we've had letters written from generals saying, please give more to USAID and the State Department or we'll have to buy more bullets and bombs. And so rebalancing that. Also rebalancing when we think about foreign policy, who are we talking to in other countries? If we're just talking to the government, you know, they are impacted very differently than most citizens in their country. And so broadening that discussion when our diplomats are in these countries talking to civil society and other representatives about how they feel secure and that sort of thing. Well, Susan, thank you so much for joining us today. Everybody pick up her book, read it. It's it's fantastic stuff. And thank you for this wonderful opportunity to learn from you once again. Thank you so much for having me. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes One. Thanks for listening and join us next time. This Smart Women Smart Power episode is supported by Tallis.